History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. You spectacular people, welcome to this 269th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going to have another in our series on haunted cemeteries. This is Haunted Cemeteries 10. I'm always very excited to do these episodes because, as you all know, I'm a huge taphophile, and if there's a haunting going on, it's like heaven to me. We have four cemeteries that we're going to be covering in this episode that are in Georgia, San Diego, Washington, and New Orleans. We want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Lori Ann, Connie, Stephanie with an I-E, Chelsea, Renee, Megan with an H, Lori with an I, Christine, Jessica, Colleen, Michael, Sandra, and then we have three Sarahs. Sarah who doesn't have an H. Then we have Sarah with an H, and her last name starts with a C. And Sarah with an H, whose last name starts with an M. Welcome, everybody. Glad to have you joining us. If you haven't joined the Spooktacular crew, what are you waiting for? Come in there, join us. We have great fun. And it's a place where you can get your weird on, fly your freak flag, and you don't have to be embarrassed about it at all because we're all a bunch of weirdos in there. And speaking of weirdos and getting your freak flag on, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Anthony Ortiz. The mountain folk who've carved out the town of Santo Tomas in the Peruvian Andes observe a very peculiar festival called Takanakui. These are people who have to be tough because of the area where they live that features steep inclines and craggy slopes. So it isn't real surprising that this festival basically consists of town members beating the tar out of each other. Yep, that's right. This is one big fight party. The tradition starts with a few days of heavy drinking and dancing in Andean horse riding costumes. And then on Christmas morning, everybody meets at the local bullfighting ring. Everybody pairs off, generally with someone they have a beef with, perhaps because of a property dispute or stealing some sheep or even spilling a drink. They wrap their hands with scarves and proceed to beat each other up. Referees circle the fight with whips to make sure fights aren't one-sided and there's no hitting someone on the ground. Participants are bound by the result of the match. I'm not sure exactly how they decide who wins, perhaps the one bleeding less or still conscious, but holding a festival dedicated to the pummeling of a neighbor certainly is odd. Turn out the lights. The party's just getting started. And now, This Month in History. (music) 
In the month of August, on the 3rd, in 1958, a nuclear-powered submarine called the Nautilus was the first submarine to cross the North Pole underwater. The USS Nautilus was built under the direction of U.S. Navy Captain Hyman G. Rickover and was the first nuclear submarine. Rickover was a Russian-born engineer who was in charge of the Navy's nuclear propulsion program. The Nautilus was 319 feet, displaced 3,180 tons, and could travel over 20 knots. It could remain submerged for almost unlimited periods of time because its atomic energy needed no air. On January 21, 1954, First Lady Mamie Eisenhower broke a bottle of champagne across the bow of the Nautilus, and it launched into the Thames River at Groton, Connecticut. On July 23, 1958, the submarine departed Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, with 116 crew on board for a mission dubbed Operation Northwest Passage. It continued to Point Barrow, Alaska, and traveled nearly 1,000 miles under the Arctic ice cap to reach the top of the world. After a career spanning 25 years and almost 500,000 miles steamed, the Nautilus was decommissioned on March 3, 1980. Now that we're up to Haunted Cemeteries 10, it's starting to get very difficult for me to write an introduction to each one of these episodes because I don't want to say the same thing over and over again. And it just so happens that one of our spectacular crew members posted a comment under a book that somebody had posted that's called Where Are They Buried? It's this huge, thick book. My mom actually owns it, and I've leafed through it a million times and have so many graves that I want to go visit. But I wanted to share what Lynn Weingarten Marston had to say as her comment, because I thought it was the perfect way to describe a cemetery. She wrote, I've traveled all over the world. The quickest way to find out about the history of a city or town, for that matter, is the graveyard. You can see the whole history of a town or area on the tombstones. From what was the main industry of the town, to plagues and outbreaks of illness, life expectancy, to infant mortality. And that really says it all about cemeteries, doesn't it? They are one of the best historical records of an area. And they are the best place to pay our respects to those who have gone on before us. In this episode, I feature four cemeteries that have reports of paranormal activity. These are Waverly Hall Cemetery in Georgia, El Campo Santo Cemetery in San Diego, Bayview Cemetery in Bellingham, Washington, and Metairie Cemetery in New Orleans. Join me as we explore these historic graveyards. First up, we have Waverly Hall Cemetery, and this is in Georgia. Waverly Hall is a small town in Harris County. The cemetery here is named for the town and has about 800 burials. One of the oldest graves belongs to the Reverend Thomas Darley, who was born in 1760 and died in 1832. He was a Revolutionary War officer that went on to become a Methodist minister who founded many Methodist churches throughout South Carolina and Georgia. The Waverly Hall Cemetery appears to be quite haunted. A couple traveling to Lynette, Alabama, had heard about the cemetery and decided to stop and check it out. They took a few pictures on a digital camera and then left just before dark, mainly because they were feeling sick. The woman became distressed as she scrolled through the pictures. She saw something that startled her and asked her boyfriend to pull over so she could show him. 
As he started to do that, the pictures vanished, all of them, including ones that had been on the camera for quite a while. They went to a CVS to get the memory card checked out, and an employee told them the card was bad. They replaced it, and the camera worked fine. They returned to the car, and the woman told her boyfriend that she was really creeped out because the worker in the store looked just like the spirit woman she had seen in the pictures. Several paranormal investigators have investigated the cemetery, and one claimed to have stepped out of his car and heard an inhuman screech and the sound of someone running toward him. And there are reports of many EVPs captured, cold spots felt, and full-bodied apparitions have been seen. So I don't know. That's really creepy walking into a store. I can't imagine that she stood there talking to the employee without just being so freaked out and unable to say anything that her boyfriend would be like, what is wrong with you? Just give the girl the memory card. So I don't know. That's one of the strangest stories I've ever heard. Makes you wonder if she maybe looked like a family member who was buried at the cemetery and is haunting it. And they captured that on film. I'm not sure. Or at least on the memory card. Then we're going to go over to the other coast in San Diego to El Campo Santo Cemetery. El Campo Santo Cemetery is located near the Old Town San Diego Historic Park. And you probably are familiar with that if you're familiar with the Whaley House because the Whaley House is located in that historic park. And for those of you who don't know already, we did do an episode on it. I can't remember which number, but it's in the archives somewhere. The cemetery was founded in 1849 by the Catholic Church. This graveyard was once much larger and now only has about 450 graves that can be seen. So, yes, this means that parts of Old Town are built over the former cemetery grounds. The encroachment of the living on the dead started with a simple horse-drawn streetcar line that went through the cemetery, and it was right over about 18 graves. That road eventually became San Diego Boulevard, so if you're ever driving over San Diego Boulevard, you're driving over some graves, because, yeah, they didn't move the bodies. Now, as for the other graves that were in the cemetery, many were moved, but not all of them. And this has caused a few issues with hauntings, not just for businesses and houses in the area, but also for the cemetery. So for any of those places that were put over the graves, they're having issues and the cemetery is having its own. We all know for some reason there are spirits who get a little PO'd when you mess around with their dead body. For me personally, I don't plan on hanging out with my dead body because I want to be cremated, so I really shouldn't have a body there to begin with. But I also, I mean, that's why I always wonder about ghosts who are in cemeteries. I'm an introvert. But I I don't want to hang out with a bunch of dead people. I would like to hang out with a living still if I'm going to have to hang around here. Just seems kind of boring sitting around with a bunch of dead bodies. Several full-bodied apparitions have been seen throughout the decades, hanging around outside of the brick walls that surround the small graveyard. I don't know if these are people who were buried outside of where the border of the graveyard is now, and so they're where their graves had been, or if they're wondering what the hell's going on because the graves have been moved. Not sure what they're doing out here. Occasionally, the cemetery hosts tours with employees dressed up in period clothing and sharing stories about some of the burials. And I love it when cemeteries do this. I wish more of them would do that. Several times, people have thought they were talking to a costumed employee, only to find out that whoever they were talking to was not a member of the staff or the figure has vanished before their very eyes. Some people claim to have seen legless apparitions, so only their top half can be seen. That's pretty freaky. Cold spots that are described as freezing have been reported. And even more peculiar is that some people who park their cars in the parking lot in front of the graveyard have had trouble starting their cars. We've heard about that at several cemeteries. Not sure how they're able to affect our engines, but somehow they are. 
A paranormal team went into the graveyard to do an investigation in 2003, and they reported the following. CSGR went with a team to investigate the graveyard. While no EMF readings were found along the walls, a jump in the readings happened in the middle of the cemetery. Team member psychic Virginia Marco saw a young boy trapped and confused. Also, a gravedigger entity was seen who visits the place according to Marco's report. I have to wonder, is that Mort fooling around? Sometimes he gets a little bored here. Maybe he's, I don't know, burying people somewhere else? Not me. This same psychic was able to help the little boy find his way to the light. The CSGR team reports a fairly peaceful cemetery which basically has calmed down a lot since 1996. And they believe this is because some ultrasound equipment found 18 graves, mostly children, under the pavement behind the cemetery and 20 graves that covered all ages in the parking lot in front. Two plaques memorializing these graves were hung in the front and the back of the cemetery. Seems like a lot of the paranormal activity has slowed down because these burials have been honored with their plaques. So that's really cool that they were able to do that. Next, we're going up the coast to Bellingham, Washington. This was suggested to me by our listener, Melissa Nelson, and she posted some pictures of Bayview Cemetery. The city of Bellingham in Washington state was named for Sir William Bellingham, who was the comptroller of the storekeeper's account for the Royal Navy. The first Caucasian settlers came in the 1850s with the Fraser Canyon Gold Rush. At the same time, coal was discovered in the area, and that mining industry would hold until the 1950s. So while the gold ran out, the coal was still there. It's kind of cool for them that they were able to find both of those things at the same time. I mean, they were probably like hot diggity dog. Bellingham officially incorporated in 1903. There was a need for a cemetery with the growing population of miners and other people, and so the Bayview Cemetery was founded in 1887, and the first burial was in 1888. This cemetery is the final resting place of the founding families of Whatcom County, and Bellingham was originally known as Whatcom. Bayview started at just 10 acres, but 12 more were added later. There are several well-known people buried here and many fascinating stories. One of the burials here is for Matthew Bickford. He was born in 1839 and served in the Civil War as a corporal in Company G, 8th Missouri Volunteer Infantry. For bravery at Vicksburg, Mississippi, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. His citation reads, Gallantry in the Charge of the Volunteer Storming Party. So that does sound like a very brave thing. A former governor of Washington is buried here. His name is Albert E. Meade. He served as governor of Washington from 1905 to 1909, and he'd been the mayor of Blaine, Washington, and a member of the Washington State House of Representatives. Ella Rhodes Higginson was an American author and writer known for her poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. She wrote for many magazines, and from 1900 to 1904, she wrote a weekly column titled Clover Leaves for the Seattle Times newspaper. The work that she is most known for is her poem, Four Leaf Clover, which was first published by Oregon's West Shore magazine in 1890. Higginson was named the first poet laureate of Washington State in 1931. She was born in Kansas and raised in Oregon and moved to Bellingham in 1888 with her husband, and she did die in Bellingham in 1940. Her burial has a large semicircular concrete bench around a monument topped with a concrete cross, and the base reads, Yet am I not for pity. Trembling, I have come face to face with God. Thomas S. Dahlquist has a simple tombstone. He started the Bellingham Bay Grocery Company and a car dealership with several floors above these businesses that had rooms for a hotel. The Dahlquist building still stands today and was one of the first reinforced concrete buildings erected in Bellingham. 
The upper floors have not been used for anything for a really long time, and there are some efforts to get some beautification going on with this building. There are a couple of restaurants that are now in the former grocery and car dealership, one of which I think is a Thai restaurant that I've heard is really good. A victim of one of the most notorious murders in Bellingham is buried at Bayview, Frederick Dames. Dames owned a butcher shop, and that is where he was found bludgeoned to death in 1905 by his 13-year-old delivery boy. His skull was pinned to the ground with a screwdriver, and the top of his head chopped off. This was assumed to be a robbery that went bad, but eventually police pinned the murder on a Maple Falls man who had killed a woman he was engaged to for her money. He also was thought to have killed three other people, and he was in Bellingham at the time of Dame's murder. Now, this seems like a really violent way to kill somebody if you're just going to rob them. So to me, it seems like it had to be more than just a robbery. So maybe there was a disagreement between these two men, because that just doesn't sound like robbery murder to me. As a little side note, the red light bar now is in the location of Dame's Butcher Shop. And if you look up at the ceiling, you'll see a row of meat hooks that are still mounted there. So that would be a little bizarre to be chugging back your beer and looking up and going, uh, there's meat hooks above me. And another more well-known burial is that of Isaac Smith Kalach, who was a Baptist minister turned politician. He decided to run for mayor of San Francisco in 1879, which was a hotly contested seat at the time, because the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, Charles DeYoung, wanted another man to win it. This was prior to the time that yellow journalism took hold in newspapers, but DeYoung's tactics would fit that description. Because he wanted another candidate to win, DeYoung started attacking Kalach and accused him of having an affair. And in case anyone thought mudslinging during campaigns was a more modern day thing, Kalach responded to these accusations with one of his own, that DeYoung's mother ran a brothel. You gotta love it. So you got one guy going, well, he's having an affair, so you don't want to vote for him. And then this other guy's going, well, his mom runs a brothel. <laughs> and keep in mind, DeYoung wasn't running for office. DeYoung took things to the next level when he shot Kalach twice on the street. I mean, this is a little bit more than accusing somebody of having an affair. The reverend survived and he got the sympathy vote and was elected the 18th mayor of San Francisco. He served from 1879 until 1881. But the story doesn't end here. On April 23rd, 1880, Kalach's son Isaac went into the Chronicle building and shot and killed Charles DeYoung. This is why I love going into cemeteries and looking at the names on the tombstones and finding out the stories that are there. Because who would have ever thought that you would see this burial? It probably says Isaac Smith Kalach, Baptist minister, something like that, or maybe minister or Reverend Isaac Smith Kalach, and you'd see the dates and you wouldn't think twice. But then when you look into the story, you find out not only was this guy mayor of San Francisco, which is no small feat, but he got into this bitter rivalry with this editor-in-chief of a paper who tried to kill him on the street, and then in retaliation, Kalacha's son kills the editor-in-chief of the paper. It just, <laughs> I just love this stuff. Kalach moved to the Washington Territory after his stint as mayor, and it is there that he died in 1887 at the age of 55. So let's talk about the legends and the hauntings that are supposedly going on here. One of the haunted monuments in Bayview is known as Angel Eyes. It's the statue of an angel standing and appearing to step forward atop the Blano or Blano Memorial. She's holding what appears to be a wreath. She gives many people the creeps because of her eyes, and they do look awfully weird. It's said that her eyes glow at night. 
Now, there are some claims that people have painted the eyes with luminescent paint, so maybe that's why they glow. So I'd be interested to know if there's still paint on them and if they're still glowing. Some reports of paranormal activity include an apparition that floats along the stone walls of the cemetery. People claim that this spirit belongs to the person buried beneath angel eyes. The other supposedly haunted monument here is nicknamed the Deathbed. This monument looks nothing like a bed, really. At least I didn't think so. It looks more like a Grecian temple in miniature that's been hollowed out. Basically, you have a base, and then there's these six short columns holding up a flat top that's about a foot and a half high. This is a grave of Edmund Gadette, but for many, it is the deathbed because it's said that when one lies upon this monument, they expedite their death. So don't tempt the spirits, anybody. I don't know where they lay. I don't know if they climb all the way on the very tippy top and lay on that, or if they lay underneath the top in between the six short columns. I'm assuming that's probably where they lay. That would make you feel a little bit claustrophobic. So very fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing this with us and the spectacular crew, Melissa. And then finally, we have probably one of the most gorgeous cemeteries in America. And of course, it's in New Orleans, Metairie Cemetery. Mark Twain was so taken with the way that New Orleans built its cemeteries with above-ground burials that he called New Orleans cemeteries the cities of the dead. And if you've ever walked through any of them there, they really do feel like you're walking through a city with a bunch of homes because of all the above-ground mausoleums and crypts and tombs. Metairie Cemetery was founded on land that had previously been a horse racing track. The racetrack was owned by the Metairie Jockey Club. Charles T. Howard had made his wealth by starting the first Louisiana State Lottery, and he asked the club for a membership. They refused membership, and Howard vowed that the race course would become a cemetery. And one of the more famous races that happened here at the racetrack was the Lexington-Lecompte race, which took place on April 1, 1854, and it was advertised as the North Against the South race. Former President Millard Fillmore was in attendance. No racing took place during the Civil War, and the grounds were used as a Confederate camp named Camp Moore until 1862 when the Union took New Orleans. After Reconstruction, the track went bankrupt and the land was sold off for a cemetery, bringing Henry's vow or curse, whichever you want to call it, to fruition. Metairie Cemetery was established in 1872 by the Metairie Cemetery Association. The designer was Colonel Benjamin Morgan Henry, and he refused to destroy the foundation of the horse race track, so upon visiting, one will notice that the cemetery and its tombs are laid out within the concentric oval patterns of the original track. The cemetery was eventually taken over by Stewart Enterprises, Inc. of Jefferson, Louisiana, and then in 2013, Service Corporation International bought Metairie Cemetery, and I think they absorbed all of Stewart Enterprises' businesses. What is today the back exit used to be a grand front entrance with an ivy-draped archway. Metairie Cemetery is amazing for those of us that like beautiful and unique monuments and memorials. It has the most monuments and memorials of any of the cemeteries in New Orleans. And when you look at any of the pictures of them, you are going to see a ton of mausoleums just everywhere. And they're so different. You've got Egyptian, Greek, Gothic... Every single architectural design is represented in this cemetery. One such memorial, the Photo family, features the statue of an angel who has a star on her forehead. This indicates that she has come from heaven. This indicates that she has come from heaven. Her right hand is lifted and holds the head of a flower that she is going to drop as though it were a blessing. Her left hand is clutching at material that overlays her gown. 
The graveyard features a tumulus, which is a man-made hill very similar to those built by the ancient mound builders. The monument includes two notable works by sculptor Alexander Doyle. There is the 1877 equestrian statue of General Albert Sidney Johnston on his horse, Fire Eater, holding binoculars in his right hand. And the other is an 1885 life-size statue that represents a Confederate officer about to read the role of the dead during the American Civil War. This tumulus features burials of the Louisiana Division of the Army of Tennessee. These were Civil War veterans that fill the 48 niches, and one of these belongs to General Pierre G.T. Beauregard. And for those of you who got to see my video that I did on Fort Sumter, that would be those of you at the executive producer $2 and above level, you know how pivotal he was to the beginning of the Civil War. He was also key in convincing Jefferson Davis to end the war. Even though he had been a Confederate general, Beauregard spent the rest of his life advocating for civil rights for blacks. He died in his sleep in New Orleans from what is thought to be a heart attack. The Egan family has an unusual monument. It was designed to look like a ruin with a marble archway open to the sky that resembles a Gothic chapel on their property in Ireland. The blocks were distressed to make them look old and cracked, and even the nameplate looks as though it had been dropped and cracked. The Brunswick tomb is a granite pyramid that is quite tall. The statue of a Greek maiden is standing outside and has her hand raised as though she's knocking on the tomb's door. There's a tall Roman urn behind her with an eternal marble flame frozen in its mouth. There are many famous burials here. Interestingly enough, one of the burials belongs to Charles Howard, who died in 1885 when he fell off a horse he had just purchased. His tomb is located on Central Avenue, and I imagine his corpse had some kind of smug grin on his face when he was being buried, knowing that that racetrack had been turned into a cemetery. Andrew Higgins is buried here. He was the inventor of the Higgins boat. He founded Higgins Industries, the New Orleans-based manufacturer of Higgins boats, LCVPs, during World War II. The company was small at first, but later became one of the biggest industries in the world, with upwards of 80,000 workers and government contracts worth nearly $350 million. General Dwight Eisenhower is quoted as saying, Andrew Higgins is the man who won the war for us. If Higgins had not designed and built those LCVPs, we never could have landed over an open beach. The whole strategy of the war would have been different. Josie Arlington, the most notorious madam in New Orleans, is buried here, but she's no longer buried in her original tomb. She died in 1914 and was placed in a tomb designed by Albert Weeblin. The memorial features a bronze female figure. The grave became a tourist attraction because of her reputation and her family was mortified, so they had the body moved. Arlington was born Mary Dubler and started her life in prostitution at the age of 17. She was known to have a quick temper and to be a spunky fighter. She wanted the classiest brothel in town and she made it happen. Soon, it was the wealthiest and most sought-out brothel in New Orleans. Her girls got $5 an hour, which doesn't sound like much today, obviously, but back in that time, they were doing pretty good. She suffered from early dementia and died when she was only 50. And she had some trouble with that brothel. It had a fire that ripped through it and completely destroyed it. And she had to move the brothel for a while while she rebuilt. And she was almost killed in the fire herself. But she got it back up and running. And soon it was the classiest brothel in town again. And speaking of red light districts, Mayor Martin Papa Behrman is here. And he wholly supported the civic implementation of Storyville which was New Orleans' legal red light district, and this was at the turn of the 20th century. Berman traveled to Washington, D.C. in 1917 when there was a threat to shut down Storyville, and he said, 
You can make it illegal, but you can't make it unpopular. Police Chief David Hennessy was murdered, and this sparked a riot. His most known capture was of an Italian criminal named Giuseppe Esposito. And maybe for this reason, there was some retaliation. He was murdered by a group of Italian men, and a sensational trial followed in 1890. Apparently, they shot him on the street. He returned fire, but soon collapsed thereafter. He did manage to whisper to uh, one of his deputies or something that came running up to him who had done this to him. 19 men had been indicted for his murder, but there were a series of acquittals and mistrials, and this angered locals because Hennessy was a very liked police chief. They formed a mob and forced the prison stores and lynched 11 of those 19 men on March 14, 1891. This was the largest known mass lynching in U.S. history. Hennessy is buried under a tall column with a draped urn atop it. Louisiana songwriter Fred Bessel published a best-selling song about Hennessy in 1891 titled The Hennessy Murder. It begins, Kind friends, if you will list to me a sad story, I'll relate. Tis of the brave Chief Hennessy and how he met his fate. On that quiet autumn evening when all nature seemed at rest, this good man was shot to death. May his soul rest with the blessed. A couple of restauranteurs are buried here. Al Copeland, who founded Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, and Ruth U. Fertel, who founded Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Anne Rice's husband, the poet Stan Rice, is buried here as well. John Burnecker was an American stunt performer who had worked on over 90 films and television series, including Jonah Hex, Green Lantern, The Hunger Games film series, Logan, and Black Panther. He was performing stunts for the television series The Walking Dead on July 12, 2017, when a stunt went horribly wrong. Burnecker fell 20 feet onto a concrete floor, missing a place safety cushion by inches and sustained a severe head injury. He died from his injuries the next day and was buried at Metairie. Louis Leo Prima was an Italian-American singer, actor, songwriter, band leader, and trumpeteer known as the King of Swing. Prima made prominent use of Italian music and language in his songs, blending elements of his Italian identity with jazz and swing music. And then there's Peleus Benton Stewart, who was Louisiana's only black governor, and he served for just 35 days. He was born in 1837 to a white father and a mother of mixed race. He worked as a Mississippi River boat captain and also served in the Civil War. He became governor during Reconstruction after he was serving as lieutenant governor, and the governor was impeached. He was buried in a private family tomb in Metairie Cemetery. John Gerald Swegman Jr. was a pioneer in the development of the modern supermarket, and he owned 18 stores in the New Orleans metropolitan area. He eventually got into politics as well and died in 1995. Swegman was twice married and twice divorced. He outlived both wives by 10 months, and what's kind of odd about them is the ex-wives died within three days of each other. Of course, the most famous burial here is Jefferson Davis. He died in 1889 and was laid to rest beneath a 38-foot granite column marking the tomb of the Army of Northern Virginia. His wife later had his body moved to Richmond. Davis had been the president of the Confederate States of America. He'd formerly been a member of Congress as both a representative and a senator. He was not for secession originally, but clearly he changed his mind somewhere. Because of his military and political background, he was quickly voted in as president of the Confederate States, and he moved the government to Richmond. He oversaw everything about the war effort, but respected the opinions of General Robert E. Lee as well. There were many strategic failures during the Civil War, and he eventually had to surrender. He was imprisoned at Fortress Monroe, and he was in jail for two years, and then they let him out on bail, and the case was dismissed. 
he ran away with his family to Canada. Eventually, he was pardoned by President Johnson and he went to England. He returned to America and later in life had a plantation. He became ill during a trip and died on December 6, 1889. There are several stories about paranormal activity in Metairie. One of these stories is about the bronze female figure outside of Josie Arlington's former grave. There are claims that the figure leaves its post at the door of the monument and walks around the other graves. And early on, people claimed that the tomb would appear to burst into flames after dark. Two gravediggers said they witnessed the statue of the girl at the door vanish and walk about in the cemetery. And it's said she continues to do that to this day. And there's an urn outside the memorial, and it's said to glow red as well occasionally. There's other people who've said that they've actually seen the figure knocking on the door that's there at the grave. There are also some records that claim that the statue has been found in other locations in the cemetery. There are people who say, well, must have been vandals who moved it. I don't know. It's kind of hard to move some of those statues and they're very heavy. But how creepy that supposedly this statue walks around and then they found it in different parts of the cemetery. And there are even people who live in the neighborhood that claim that when this statue knocks on the door, that they can hear the sound of it for blocks because she's so angry in the way that she's knocking on the door to the tomb. Now, of course, I hate to ruin all the fun about talking about this flaming tomb, debunking it by saying that there was a street light that happened to be across from where her tomb was, and people believe that it was just that street light reflecting off of the tomb that made it look like it was on fire. I don't know if that was true, but maybe that's what was going on. Of course, I would rather prefer that there was ghostly fire surrounding the tomb. The ghost of David Hennessy is said to walk around the cemetery. His spirit is always dressed in his police uniform and witnesses wonder if he is protecting the cemetery from vandals and grave robbers. So basically continuing to do his duty into death. And then back to Charles Howard, who promised to make the racetrack into a cemetery. Apparently he speaks around his grave. People swear that they hear a male voice at his grave and it is so loud that visitors passing by stop to glance at each other. And then they look around like, okay, who's talking to us? We heard something. I don't know if anybody's ever tried to catch it on a recorder or gotten an EVP, but that'd be a good idea if you're ever out there, take a recorder with you and when you're around Charles Howard's grave, see if you pick up anything. Are these historic cemeteries harboring not only the dead bodies of some well-known people, but also their spirits? Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, if you love hearing about these haunted cemeteries and you love cemeteries, you'll want to hear the Stones and Bones bonus cast that I have for executive producers. I've done 13 of them now, and they feature cemeteries all around the world, very unique places. I'd love to have you check out the website, historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I got an email from Susan. She says, I love, love, love your podcast and been binging on it for a few months now. She wanted to thank me for giving her the name of Taphophile to describe what one of her favorite pastimes is. And she remembers her mom and dad taking her tours of old cemeteries in the South and around Iowa, near where they both came from. While my older brother and I were both born in Iowa, we moved to Tennessee when I was a baby and stayed until I was 12. My two younger brothers were born there, and on Sundays after Mass, the family would often take long drives up to Lookout Mountain or sometimes the Smokies, and we'd climb all over the Civil War canyons in the park. I have fond memories. In fact, deeply love the South. So that's very cool. And then she ended up moving to Flagstaff, and she got very fond of the Reardon Mansion. I hope I said that right. So I'd love to know more about that. 
apparently it has really beautiful gardens around this home. And then she started Freaky Flagstaff Foot Tours, which sounds like a lot of fun to me. She's gotten busy and it's been harder for her to maintain it. Hopefully she'll get back into that and be able to do the tours again in the future. I love hearing when people start their own ghost tours. I went on one in Sanford, Florida. It was a smaller ghost tour, and it's a small town in Florida, and I just had a really great time with it. And sometimes it feels like some of these ghost tours in smaller towns are almost better than the ones in the really big, well-known cities because you're not really expecting much. And I pass by Sanford all the time, and I never really thought much of it. But after going on the ghost tour there, I really got an appreciation for it. And you guys know, obviously, I love to do ghost tours. To me, it's the best way to get the history of a place because you get the great fun stories to go with the other history that's there. So thank you, Susan, for writing. Monica left a comment at the website. Hi, I've been listening to the show for three months now, and I've been hooked ever since. I can relate to some of the haunted stories, especially about haunted dolls. Hope to be able to catch up to the current episodes. More power. Boy, I would hate to be able to relate to stories about haunted dolls. <laughs> I want to thank Megan for writing and suggesting that I check out some places in Richmond, Virginia. And then we got another comment on the website from Kate. Hello, since I'm also from Central Florida, I know some lovely haunted cemeteries in my area. One of the most famous ghosts from my county has their grave located in one of these cemeteries. My husband and I decided to check it out one day in May. This was a warm, still day without a cloud in the sky, typical May on the coast. As soon as we approached her grave, the wind started blowing. We walked away, the wind stopped and remained still. There are also several members of a family, all young girls, who died tragically in a boating accident long ago. It's a quaint, beautiful cemetery with homes on all sides, tucked away on an old side road. There are graves from 100 plus years to as recent as just a few years ago. And then she said, unfortunately, she knows the last girl buried in there. And she asked for me to do more in Central Florida. I did do a bonus cast in Sanford. So I got that Central Florida location in there. And Kate, I would love to know the name of that cemetery. So hopefully you hear this episode and you let me know because I would love to check it out. The Flash Fiction Contest is on again on October 1st. I will be celebrating the fourth anniversary of History Goes Bump. And for the last two years, we've done that by having a Flash Fiction Contest. We're doing it again this year. So here are the rules. You have until midnight Eastern time on September 8th, 2018 to get in your entries. Word limit, as always, is a thousand words. If you go over Tad, that's fine, but try to keep it in the thousand range. That's why it's called flash fiction. The subject should be creepy or scary, and please keep it within a lower R rating. So not too much gratuitous sex and language and gore. And I had said I described it as something you wouldn't mind your teenager reading. And I loved it. Sarah goes, for me, it's not so much something I'd let a teenager read as something I'd be happy for my parents to read. And I was like, you know what? That is a better point because some people would let their teenagers read some pretty uh, racy stuff, but they wouldn't want their parents necessarily to read that. So I thought that was a great point. And I know I was reading Stephen King as a young person. So we will have three winners. We always award a medal for each place. And then the third place winner gets their choice of T-shirt. Second place winner gets their choice of a long sleeve t-shirt and the first place winner gets their choice of a hoodie sweatshirt. All of those stories will be read on the anniversary show. And then if we have some time, we'll read some of the runner up stories. And as you know, we occasionally carry some of the runner up stories to the Christmas Eve storytelling that we do around the fire. 
If you want to try your hand at some flash fiction, this would be a great opportunity to do that. We've had some marvelous stories in the past. Really enjoyed you guys. You're so talented. We have a couple of reviews at Apple Podcast. Hey, Megan, spooky fun, five stars. I love this podcast. It incorporates two of my favorite things, history and creepy things. It's a great listen while at work or driving. I encourage everyone to listen. Thank you so much, Megan. And Mr. Zelig, smart and entertaining podcast, five stars. And he did say he misses the chemistry between myself and Denise, but hopefully you're okay with it just being me as well. Want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery, Candace Nelson, who will be getting a beautiful spot on the niche wall. Chelsea Smith and Tiffany Wilson. Mort, our Grave Digger, is preparing your chest tombs as I speak. Bobby Watts is going to be moving into a garden crypt, you lucky gal, you. And Rocky Mellon has increased his pledge so that he can have a garden crypt as well, which means, Rocky, you're going to get dug up, but it's okay. You're going to like your new home better. I want to thank you guys so much for stepping up to support the show. If anybody else would like to join them, check out patreon.com forward slash history goes bump. I would love to have you helping out the show for even as little as a dollar a month. It makes a huge difference. Isn't that right, Mort? Is that why you want me to put on this thing called a G-string? Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.